Hey everyone, there is some strong language in today's episode, including a couple of F-bombs. I've not beeped anything out, so I thought I should let you know about it beforehand. Hello everybody, this is Pete in almost real time again. It's the Sunday before episode 5 drops. So we're just about halfway through the 10 episode season I have planned for the podcast. So if you're someone who really has been enjoying it and has been meaning to write a review on iTunes, can I ask for you to do it this week? I'd still like to get some lift while we still have episodes left in the season. So if you could write a review on iTunes or on Google Play, I would super appreciate it. Episode 4 from last week has has gotten fewer downloads than the previous week's episode, and actually I was worried that it wasn't going to break triple digits. It did just break 100 downloads on Friday. If you like football or fall or foibles, as I say, check out episode 4. It's one of my favorites, and I think it's pretty funny. Also like to note that France has displaced Uruguay as my number one country for listeners outside of the United States. So if you're from France, uh, je suis heureux que vous soyez là. Merci beaucoup. So I do want to tell you that today's episode 5 was originally going to be much later in the season, around episode 8 or 9, but I I switched it out with what was planned for episode 5 because there are still some developments that need to happen before the original episode 5 will be done. That being said, this new episode 5, I'm not sure that it's 100% ready for prime time either. As you'll hear, it's based on an essay that I've been wrestling with for a long time. I don't know that I've landed it in time for this podcast episode, but what I want to do is honor the schedule that I laid out when I said I was going to do these 10 episodes. I don't want to just start pushing things back, simply because I'm not 100% sure. I'm reminded of what Lorne Michaels says about Saturday Night Live. He says, we don't go on because we're ready, we go on because it's 11.30. So, it's metaphorically 11.30 now, so here is the new episode 5. I hope you like it. Good times, everybody. I've been thinking a lot about soccer lately, probably because we have a Major League Soccer team here in Columbus called The Crew, and the crummy owner is threatening to move the team to Austin, Texas if he doesn't get a new downtown stadium. It's a raw deal, especially because The Crew was one of the original teams in the league, and their stadium, their current stadium, is only 18 years old, and it is what's called a soccer-specific stadium which is why I think the U.S. men's national team and the U.S. women's national teams often play games here. Although I've only been to a few crew games over the years, I always had a great time. And, like any person who loves their hometown, I can work up a righteous anger for this lopsided deal that we're being forced to consider. But thinking about soccer reminds me that I tend to hold on to a lot of things that most people let go of. The truth is I have a hard time letting go of some things. My wife has told me this almost daily for the 23 years we've been married, but other people have told me this too. Usually they're friends that I've known long enough that they're comfortable sharing this kind of unvarnished feedback with me. Lately, though, my primary care doctor and my cardiologist have echoed these sentiments. I seem to be holding on to a lot of things about soccer, which I've discovered in the process of wrestling with this particular essay. I'm some 15 drafts in, and this has been bloated to almost 8,000 words, and then trimmed down to 2,000 words, and then bloated again. It started in one vein and finished in another. There have been tangential diatribes that have surprised and even scared me a little bit. What this essay has not done, I'm afraid, is to finally snap together into a nice tight narrative. And this interests me. 
I seem to be outputting a whole lot of raw content about the topic, soccer, while I'm also failing to understand what the takeaway ultimately is. Which is another way of saying, I think youth sports are more complicated than we're willing to admit. And that I, some 40 years later, find myself bogged down in the mire as if I had played a game this very morning and forgot it was my day to bring the juice boxes and oranges. And when this happens to me when I write, when a fire hose of verbiage is flowing but to no discernible end, I try to step out of it for a moment. And honestly, I'll often say this out loud. What is the question that all of this content is trying to answer? And I think in this case, it is this. Do my kids hold on to things in the same way that I do? Are they unnecessarily burdened by repetitive memories that are triggered regularly? And will I ever be able, as so many have suggested to me, to let some of this stuff go? And I'm going to try and answer those questions by writing about youth soccer, or, quote, organized soccer, as it's sometimes called. Organized soccer was experiencing a real golden age in the western suburbs of Cleveland in the 1980s. The leagues were many and varied, full of kids. There were indoor leagues and outside leagues, in-house and travel. Now, my dad, as I've mentioned before, was coming up on 50 when I was born. And while he did a serviceable job of teaching me to throw and catch a baseball growing up, for soccer, I was more or less on my own. I think he eyed the game with a veteran suspicion of all things European. But he still bought me the cleats and the shin guards, and he came to games and stood off at one end of the field with our little white dog Charlie on a leash. And when the tough games were done, he'd frequently pull into the drive through at McDonald's and order up a couple of sundaes or a chocolate shake on the way home. For most of my youth, I played what we called in-house soccer, which was the open-to-everyone league, with cotton t-shirts for uniforms, and in Everybody Plays Ethos, which frankly I was grateful for. But still, every spring and every fall, I tried out for the travel team. The travel team. The travel team. Even today, those words carry weird significance for me. Travel team was a select team that, as the name implies, traveled to and from other western suburbs, playing against their travel teams. But it was the uniforms I truly coveted. Proper kit, those stripes. Real soccer jerseys with matching shorts and soccer socks. The goalies even had their own yellow jersey, just like in England. I tried out for travel team in fourth grade, again in fifth grade, I think twice in sixth grade, and then again in seventh grade, and I was cut each and every time. I would ride my bike to the tryouts, I would run my heart out in the 40 and work my butt off in the scrimmages, but the truth was, I simply wasn't good enough and a letter would arrive in the mail a week or so later to confirm this. Sometimes my mom would try to hide the letter, but I always found it. I don't know if they still do cuts like this today, or if they do cuts at all anymore. I don't think I'd be able to even articulate what I think about cuts as an adult, because my feelings are still mired in these childhood experiences, scented as they are with the smell of stamps and wet leaves on an early fall day. In 8th grade, I made the travel team. I got my first real uniform, green and white vertical stripes, with my name and number on the back. And the truth is that this reversal of my soccer fortunes was not thanks to an improvement in my game skills, but instead due to a fortuitous situation in which most of the really good athletes in our leafy suburb simply decided that they were done playing soccer, and they turned their focus to things such as fall baseball and the like. So... Everyone who tried out that year made the team. In most games, we could scarcely feel to side 
so all of us saw serious playing time. And I mean no offense to my fellow players, or to the coaches, at least one of whom I've since learned from Facebook has passed on, but our team, the Warriors, sucked. We sucked hard. While soccer may have fallen out of favor with the good athletes in our suburb, it apparently remained in good standing with the good athletes of our neighboring suburbs. I recall more than a handful of losses in the double digits. What did we expect? Our team had three or maybe four players who held over from the previous year, and then the roster was rounded out with players like me, long on intention but short on skill. Kids who were persistent and hung around long enough to get a shot. I was a left wing, a striker for God's sake, and I don't recall taking a single shot on goal the entire season. It was the last year that I would play organized soccer. When I had my own kids and I moved to my own leafy suburb with its own youth sports leagues, I knew I wanted to be somewhat involved, but I also wanted to get my coaching out of the way before society's more competitive instincts kicked in. This meant coaching a few seasons of t-ball and a few of U5 soccer, where we didn't keep score and doing cute things like sitting down in the middle of the field to pick dandelions earned as much applause as making an actual play. And if you don't know, by the way, the uniform game has been seriously elevated by my generation of coaches. From age four on, my kids were getting real kit, real jerseys, just like the ones I coveted in my youth, with their names on the back and matching shorts and socks. By U7, when scores start to be kept, they even had a goalie jersey, a yellow one, just like in England, although this jersey was in fact about 20 times too big for even the biggest kid on the team. My son played up through U7, first grade as I recall. I could never tell if he liked it or not, though, until the game when his coach, whose name I honestly can't remember, but whose son was a true wizard with the ball, this coach decided out of the blue in the middle of a game to put my son in goal. My seven-year-old son, heir to my clumsiness, who had not, as far as anyone knew, ever expressed even the slightest interest in playing goalie. And as the game would quickly show, he did not really know the first thing about how to do it. The first thing about playing goalie, by the way, is that you're allowed to pick up the ball with your hands. After two quick plays in which he ran out of the box and tried to kick an oncoming shot away, two goals against us, I'm afraid, I realized that he didn't seem to know this rule. And so, I did something that I had sworn I would never do, which is, I walked down to his part of the field and tried shouting advice to him, or at him, or in his general direction, as Monty Python would say. Okay, kiddo, okay, kiddo, you can pick up the ball with your hands, you know. You're the goalie. When they're coming in, you just run out and pick up that ball. Certainly, that was sound advice. My kid was too far stuck in to heed any words his dad was shouting at him. And my wife walked down and put her hand on my arm in the way she does at parties when I'm missing some obvious social cues. And she said, I was being that dad. And she walked me back to where the other parents were, where we stood and watched three or four more balls get past my son, who was still not using his hand. And my rage built and built, and I hissed, Why the fuck did the coach even put him out there? He's never played goalie. Why the fuck's he leaving him out there for fuck's sake? Jesus Christ! So, I think it's fair to say that I was bringing some of my own shit to this situation, which isn't fair for anyone, but it's true nonetheless. When the game was over, my son ran off the field, swimming in that huge fucking goalie shirt, tears in his eyes, because by age seven, by age seven, you know the fucking score.
and I think he was getting his first glimpse at what it's like when the world sets you up to fail, which, despite my rage, is what had occurred. And so the coach pulled him aside and spoke to him. But I don't know what was said. I only know it didn't help, and I found myself doing another thing that I swore I would never do, which was to tell one of my kids' volunteer coaches how to do their jobs. So as my wife took my son back to the car, I walked over to the coach and said as calmly as I could, I don't think he wants to play goalie. And there may have been some anger in those little pauses I put between each word. But the coach looked at me, confused for a moment, as if he didn't know who I was. And then he said, Okay. There were just a few games left that season, but my son's heart wasn't into it anymore. He never played goalie again, but there was no more excitement about playing in the field either. For him, each game was like going to a shitty job that you've just got to get through. He was seven fucking years old. After the last game, the team went out for pizza, and the coach called each player up to say a few words and hand them a trophy. I was sitting in the back of the restaurant with my wife and a group of moms. When the time came, here's what the coach said about my kid. Quote, if he works really hard, he could be just as good as the other kids. Unquote. That was it. Not even a, he played with heart, or a, what a hard worker, or he's always hustling, or he gives 110%. I mean, Jesus Christ, those are table stakes cliches, and they're designed just for these situations. I don't mind honest feedback. It has its place, even for a seven-year-old. But shit like this just suggests to me that the coach, volunteer though he may be, he just wasn't paying attention to my kid. I was so stunned about what I had heard, and to be fair, for a moment I was not even sure that I had heard him right. But then my wife leaned across the table and hissed, What the fuck with this guy? Indeed, what the fuck with him? He had succeeded in ruining soccer for my son, and honestly, for graying the hair on my temples. And I want to give him a pass. I do, because he was a volunteer, and English was his second language. But I'm telling you, ten years later on, as I record this, I'm still feeling a righteous rage about it. It's another one of those things that I should be able to let go of. But I can't. I just can't. I don't know how. And the recollection of it, it brings back the anger. Full force, sometimes even stronger. I'm okay at being a forgiver, but I'm lousy at being a forgetter. My cardiologist keeps telling me that I have to find a way to move on from these things, though, before my heart makes the decision for me. Some four years later, surprising no one more than me, my son announced that he wanted to play soccer again. Are you sure? I asked. Most of those kids have kept on playing when you stopped. But he'd been playing in a pickup game at recess and felt like he was ready. So we signed him up, and at the first practice, I let his new coach know that he hadn't played for a few years and to let me know what we could work on at home. I also said not to put him in goal, ever. But the truth is, we didn't need to work too much at home. My son was right in the middle of the mix of talent at this level, and his new coach let us all know he wanted to teach fundamentals and not worry so much about winning. This was fortuitous because our team, the aptly named Gold Team, for their slick gold jerseys, did not do much winning that first year. In fact, they reminded me of my own travel team experience. They only had one or two kids who had the instinct of driving the ball into the net, and everyone else was at varying levels of skill, all doing their best to stay involved. The worst part about this winless season, however, 
was the presence of defense push-up dad, who was so beside himself that our defenders tended to stay back on the field when we got the ball on offense, that he'd spend entire halves of the game screaming, Defense! Push-up! Defense! Push-up! Over and over, to no avail. In fact, he simply couldn't comprehend that the defense wanted to hang back. And he'd pause his yelling every few minutes, and he'd look at the other parents like, Can you believe this? I mean, push up for God's sake. We would all avert our eyes when he did that. And I think that coach, unlike defense push-up guy, knew that the team had much bigger issues than whether the defense should push up. And it did seem like the games that were closer were those where the defense hung back and limited the opponent's shots on goal. Despite the winless year, my son wanted to play again the next season, so we returned, same coach, more or less same players, same defense push-up dad still unable to accept his life for what it was. And for most of the entire season, the same results. Lots of work on fundamentals. No wins. But on the final game of the season, against the dreaded and heretofore undefeated blue team, something really odd happened. The odd thing was, we made it to halftime, and the score was still knotted at zeros. And it stayed that way, deep into the second half, and the other parents began to exchange glances with each other that seemed to make some sort of implicit, unsaid agreement. If we end up with a 0-0 tie, we are going to celebrate that motherfucker like it's 1999. Which is to say, after two years of being on the losing end, we were ready to grab a tie and hold it high to the heavens in thanks and celebration. Defense push-up guy even laid off his go-to plan, sensing that it may be better, after all, to let our defense hang back. I have a pretty good record of what happened next, in part because the next day I had received an email from an old college friend, and in writing a reply, this whole story came tumbling out, from the goalkeeping incident back in first grade up through this very game, a tidal wave of angsty verbiage, that no one in this life deserves to receive in response to a simple, hey, what have you been up to? Here is some of what I wrote. I did two things in public last night that I rarely do in public. I swore out loud, and I teared up. These both occurred at my son's soccer game. My son's team hasn't won a game in two years. We haven't even tied. You win some, you lose some is simply not applicable for this group of kids. I guess I should be glad that it's been a great exercise for my son to practice dealing with losing, which is something he hates to do, but also, you know, two years. The team has improved over two years, but there's an unfortunate truth to athletics at this age. If you don't have a few of the really good players, it's really tough to turn things around, no matter how hard you practice. Last night we were tied nil-nil versus the very good blue team, with about three minutes left in the game. The blue team had more or less dominated the ball, having taken at least 20 shots on goal to this point in the game. But our defense played well, and our goalkeeper was having a great game. Conversely, our offense had only crossed midfield once or twice, and hadn't managed to take any actual shots. I think every parent on our side of the field was thinking the same thing. Hold on. Just hold on. Hold on for three more minutes, and we'll celebrate this tie like we had won the Super Bowl. So what happened? You know what happened. They put one in. They put one in and I spun away from the field and said shit out loud to the parking lot. And I was not alone in saying this. Do you want to know what 20 anxious parents all whispering shit outside at the same moment sounds like? Yeah, I want to know too, but we were all drowned out by defense push-up guy who was wailing to the heavens. I mean wailing. He has no volume control. So the rest of us flipped to the moral victory script, the classic compromise. 
We reference the you're getting better every game page of our parenting playbooks. But we don't say things like you win some, you lose some anymore. We stopped saying that about six games ago. I have to admit for the remaining two minutes or so of the game, in which, as you might expect, we did not come back to tie the game. I watched quietly and was tearing up all along. You know, I just I just wanted them to have a frickin' zero-zero tie after two years of nine-nil losses. Come on, universe, help a guy out. It's just some days you really need a tie just to get you through to the next game. And if you come up short, time after time after time, well, not even ice cream is going to make you feel better about that. Now, as I reread that email before adding it to the show, I started to wonder if maybe I wasn't making too big a deal of things. I know my memory for these kinds of things is unusual. And a great many people have played for bad soccer teams and more or less moved on, with no residue tainting their later lives. I began to wonder what, if anything, my kiddo even remembered about that team, now that some six years have passed since he last played. So I asked him to sit down for a quick interview. Do you know why I have you in here for an interview? No, I asked you, and you're like, well, well, I'll tell you what the interview is about once the interview starts. Okay. It's about soccer. When was the last time you played soccer? A while ago. What grade? Do you remember? Kindergarten? How about when you played on the gold team in sixth grade? I remember we took a lot of L's. Like, a lot. Like, we didn't win a game. I mean... Was that tough, or...? Yeah. I mean... Yeah, it was pretty tough. Does it bother you now when you think of it? No. It doesn't bother me now. What about at the time? At the time, it bothered me a lot. Why do you think you guys had a lot of L's? I don't know. No idea? Mm-hmm. So people always say that losing builds character. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, since it's been so many years, now it's been six years since you played, if those two seasons if you feel like they built character for you. Maybe. I do, don't know. Do you ever think about it? Sometimes. What do you think? Uh, I, I, I think about how angry and mad I got. And, like, if that happened to me today... Like, it, depending on the circumstances, I would probably feel the same or worse. I'm just wondering, like, did you know how the parents felt on the sideline? Like, how badly I wanted you guys to get that time? Yeah. Could you tell? Mm-hmm. Wait, did you call him push-up guy because he would yell at me to push up? So there was one kid's dad. I'm not going to say who it was. I think I and know And he yelled the is. whole time. Defense, push up! Yeah. Every game, he yelled that for like a half an hour. And, like, we we couldn't stand by him. We had to move. The problem with that team was our we had the best goalie in the league. And we had a very, very good defense. But, uh, we just didn't have an offense. Like, at all. What about, um, so then you stopped playing. Did you, Were you just sick of losing or just... Sick of playing soccer? I was sick of losing, and I decided, why why do we even try this hard if we're not getting any results? 
I mean, I know we are getting results, every team gets better, but the only thing we had ourselves to compare to were other teams who were also getting better and always better than us. So was it any fun? No. It was a mostly negative experience because I know everyone on the team worked their ass off. Do you think if you guys had won a couple of games, it would have been fun? If we had like at least tied a game, that would have been amazing. Yeah. But like, when whenever I was upset, you would make me feel better. So like the first season, you'll like you'll win eventually, you'll get better, and then the second you would do some, you would try doing stuff like that. Yeah. I had this essay about soccer, and it talks a lot about the soccer team I played on, which was equally as bad as yours. Um, but we used to lose like 15 to nothing. We didn't have a good defense or a good offense. But I don't know how to end it. I don't know what the takeaway is. So you played two years. I think you guys played 11 games each year, so you were 0-22. Is there anything positive that came out of the experience? Do you feel like you learned how to lose better? I feel like I learned how to not care. Like, if, 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 like, I know something's a lost cause, then, like, just, like, don't put effort into it. Well, I know you've always been like that when you were little. Like, if you couldn't do something great right away, you didn't want to do it. But that's yeah. why soccer was so interesting because you kept at it for so many years, even mm-hmm. though you didn't have uh, a bunch of wins. Yeah. Do you think your kid will play soccer? If he wants to. Well, and I'll just tell you this, kid. Lots of kids are on teams that don't win. Mm-hmm. Everybody has that experience sooner or later, and it doesn't mean you guys didn't work hard. Never let that stuff change how you feel personally about yourself. Mm-hmm. Okay? And also... When you're on defense, push up. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Okay. Thanks for the interview. No problem. Good times. I have ice cream now. Yeah. So two things I took away from that chat. First was that, to the extent that my son even remembers this team, his main takeaway was, I think I learned not to care. And I want to believe by this that he's not a hardened cynic at 16, but he rather means in the grand scheme of things, all those L's mean less and less, especially as time passes. The second takeaway is that any experience, from losing a soccer game to recording an interview with your dad, is much better when it's punctuated by ice cream. Sometimes I think, wouldn't it be great if his team had somehow scored to preserve the tie? Wouldn't that be some sort of defining moment for these young people some life lesson about the value of perseverance? Frankly, wouldn't that be a much better story for me to tell here? Isn't this why, after all, this essay hasn't snapped neatly together? And the thing is, I don't think it would be a better story. I don't think he would remember it any more or less than what he remembers now. It would be an easier story to tell, a cleaner story to tell, because the fundamental change in the main characters would be obvious and uplifting from losing to winning, or in our case, from losing to tying. And sometimes in life, things work out this way, and when they do, you have a fun, albeit obvious, story to tell. But those stories, the neat and clean ones, they tend to burn bright and fast, and are gone before you know it. They don't settle down low into the soul, with their debris slowly becoming sludge, the way that this story can. 
They don't leave you with the uncomfortable feeling that the universe is by and large indifferent to you and most certainly to your sense of yourself. One team scored more goals than the other. And really, anything beyond that, and we're pretty much making shit up. I am surprised by how little control we have over the lessons that our kids take away from youth sports. For as much as we'd like them to experience hard work pays off, or even win or lose, be satisfied that you did your very best, kids seem to know, inherently, that the world doesn't always work in the way adults say it does. And despite what the grown-ups like to say, the world keeps score. Kids keep score. Hell, I'll watch the stats for this story closely, because it is a way of keeping score. And somewhere along the way of all this scorekeeping, we have to decide for ourselves what we're taking away from any one experience, and how we feel about it, and what it makes us think about ourselves. I can't tell you how relieved I am that my son doesn't seem to carry intense memory of his youth sports teams around with him in the same way that I do. It's so much less baggage for him to haul around. I think my cardiologist would soundly approve. And my hope is that what sticks with my son is the memory of two seasons of working hard and getting better. And despite not winning any games, still going out for ice cream with his dad. Or every now and again, a chocolate shake. But from the drive through window, that's right on the way home. Pete Brown Says is the property of Blue Monkey Communications and is a work of creative nonfiction audio written and produced by me, Pete Brown. This show is written to the very best of my memory. Some music in the show comes from Brian Hake and Kevin Davison, and the closing song, I'm Not Myself, is by their band, Delicious. Other audio may have been sourced from the websites audionautics.com, incompetech.com, the YouTube Free Music Library, freesound.org, and podcastmusic.com. Most pieces are licensed under Creative Commons. Please see the show notes at PeteBrownSays.com for complete attribution. If you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play. And as always, thanks for your time listening today. Good times, everyone. Hi, everyone. Over at PeteBrownSays.com, you can submit your own story in response to a prompt that appears on the submit page. There's a record button right there on the page. You just click it, share your story, and click send. It's all anonymous, and I love getting to hear your stories. Right now, the prompt asks you to think back to your very first room, as far back as you can go, maybe even to your nursery if you can remember that. But close your eyes and really see that room. And then tell me about one or two of the objects that you remember being in there. This is a little exercise I use to try and get at the very earliest memories I can. And I do it by closing my eyes and seeing my room painted baby blue, the table lamp with a red, white, and blue base, a kid's school desk with the chair attached. That's what I want to hear. Tell me about something that was in the earliest room you can remember. Thanks and good times.
with coordinating with core with coordinating short with matching shorts and soccer socks. <laughs>